Hey there, cuties. Welcome to Elmira Radio Hour. This week, we have a gorgeous interview with the one and only singer-songwriter, educator, organizer, Ava Sophia. She's Boston-based and a total babe, and I can't wait to share her insights on quarantine cooking, on the music scene here in Boston, and exploring one's voice and identity through music. Okay, let's do it. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I've also been wanting to do this for a long time. (laughs) Because you are... I am an OG Ava Sophia music fan, and you are also <laughs> like one of the people who hypes up the podcast so much. <laughs> well, I think I've been listening to the podcast longer than I've been friends with you, to be honest. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I love it. The content, it's the content we need. <laughs> so, what have you been up to today? What have you been up to this week? Oh, okay. This week, I've been fairly busy. Um, mm-hmm. For work, I've been recording music and art lessons from my home, which has been a new challenge. Um, so that's so, taking... Yeah. For those who don't know what you do on in your... Like most of us who know you, know you as a musician. But what do you do for your day job? I work at the Boston Chinatown Neighborhood Center in Chinatown, um, Boston, Massachusetts. Shout out to them. Yes. They, have, they provide a lot of different services for families and recent immigrants in the Chinatown area. But I work in their child care after school program called Red Oak as an arts specialist. And I teach music with them. That's incredible. What has it been like moving virtual? I am just so grateful to the organization, my boss personally, and all the other staff for being so quickly adaptable to this new format. Mm -hmm. I think that it really wouldn't be possible without my boss fighting on behalf of our jobs, first of all, and all of the staff having like a very multidisciplinary set of skills. I feel lucky during this time to have at least some minimal video editing experience and and recording experience and being comfortable in front of a camera and things like that. Um, I also heard that within all the after-school programs in Chinatown, we're some of the only ones who haven't put our part-time staff on furlough. So I just feel very, very grateful for my job right now. Wow. No, that's really important, particularly because we both know people whose livelihood has been affected by the current um, social distancing and staying in place, right? It's really hard, especially for people who freelance, who are creative, who are in the arts. 
Mm-hmm. And in childcare as well, I just feel like for my situation specifically as an artist and as a childcare worker, things could have gone very, very differently, very mm-hmm. easily. So I, I'm grateful and I, you know, my heart goes out to people who are struggling right now. Mm-hmm. How did you end up doing what you do now? Like, how did you stumble into this work or what was your entry point into it? Mm. So I have, even throughout childhood, I think some of my earliest entryways into any sort of serious creative environment were through a lot of outreach programs and nonprofits that Boston offers. Um, Kids who go to Boston public schools or kids living in Boston. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a graduate of the Berkeley City Music Program Mm-hmm. And they provide um, after-school music programming and scholarships and things to kids in the Boston area. And those are some of my earliest, earliest memories. First of all, just being involved in a music space that really, really took people seriously and and feeling like all my questions about, like, is this a thing that I can do or is this a thing that can be professional for me? Like, everyone around me was treating it like a professional environment. So that those are the areas that I was really able to foster my skills and talent from a from a young age. And mm-hmm. my teachers were some of my earliest role models. And just uh, many of my teachers at the time were working artists, too. So seeing them teach and have this impact on on the students and then being able to go out and gig and, and having this like little reputation in Boston just made me it I just looked at them like they were so cool like wow that's really what I imagined for myself and now you're that person Ava (laughs) oh man that's now you're the person who's performing and a role model to your students (laughs) um I can't think of and also it's so important I think to see someone of South Asian background who's like you know, someone who looks like me, <laughs> essentially taking the stage, you know, you don't know who that will touch. And in what way? Oh, that's so meaningful to me. That's so meaningful, especially because I think, especially in the creative environments that I was part of growing up and not having a whole lot of representation of South Asians in the musicians that I admired, that definitely means a lot to me <laughs> to hear. Um, if I had to ask you how to describe your musical style, how would you, you how would you describe it? I would say I kind of borderline between singer songwriter pop and R and B. I I have a lot of R and B influences in my music, but I don't necessarily consider myself like in one strict genre. I guess no mm-hmm. artist really does, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's maybe like a trick question Um, (laughs) or not a fair question rather. But who are some of the artists that you look to for inspiration? I think one of the earliest, um, the majority of people who know me know that I've been inspired forever by Alicia Keys. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of my earliest memories of hearing her were like my mom playing her first album in the car all the time and learning her lyrics and just like knowing everything about all of her songs. So, and also just people comparing me to her from, from a young age because I played piano and sung, but um, I was lucky to have parents who played everything for me, like from 
I remember hearing Joni Mitchell, Patti Smith, Sean Paul, Mary J. Blige, um, Lauren Hill. But I think the the influences that stuck with me were like the R&B powerhouses, the female singer songwriter, mm -hmm. the ones who were like really unapologetic about telling stories. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? I think I, I, that's a good question. I, I guess I haven't thought about it in that way, but I think that I just needed to have inspirations who let me know that I could open up. Like, mm. I, I, I know that I grew up feeling very much like I needed to assimilate in a lot of ways, but seeing artists or any storytellers who just put their stories on the forefront and, and let themselves represent themselves on their own terms felt radical to me if that makes sense yeah that makes complete sense can you tell me a little bit more about this the assimilation bit that you referred to yeah so I grew up in Boston and my my dad is from India he's from Mumbai and my mom grew up in upstate New York and she's like fourth generation Italian American and as I think my experience being a biracial person was also heavily impacted by the fact that my parents are divorced. Mm -hmm. So having both sides of my family and honestly, both sides of me being very, very separate entities to me all my life made me feel like not just that I needed to choose one, but that I needed to prove that my life wasn't an accident that it wasn't, I, I wasn't just like floating in the ether as someone who didn't have a place. Mm -hmm. And what role has your music played in navigating this? I think music just gave me an outlet to speak, which I desperately, desperately needed. I, I also grew up as kind of a pretty quiet kid. So for some, for whatever reason, I feel like music gave me an outlet to just say everything that I was holding in. Mm. It does. That's so resonant. I feel like so much of where we're at right now is everyone is just like holding in so much. And, you know, I think people are really identifying that they may or may not have outlets for those things. Mm. And um, it's, it's like, it always amazes me how art is both like a heal, like a tool for healing but also it's like a tool for uncovering, for like making sense, for coping. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I find it with like make, you know, making collages and things like that. So what you're saying is really resonant. Yeah, um, I think that I can't, I'm, I'm really starting to discover during this quarantine period that I can't always, I rarely can control what comes out of me and I'm trying to actually let music be something that's healing instead of something that I feel like I need to churn out just because of whatever because people are online now because I have the time to create something um no this has to be the time for me to 
to be inward with myself. I would like to talk about that a little bit more. So we've seen so many beautiful artists, you know, use this time for generating really, you know, impactful work and thinking creatively about how to share their work. But what do you think is, I don't know, maybe the downside? So do you feel like there's increased pressure as an artist right now to produce in a particular way? To be honest, I've definitely felt really overwhelmed by all of the content that I think is being thrown in all of our faces all at once. Mm -hmm. It's really exciting to me to see artists adapt to digital platforms. And I love seeing my friends' content. And I just really like... I feel like all my friends should have YouTube channels because everyone is so <laughs> unique and has something to offer. But it's it's so overwhelming to to see artists just seem to have like to have had like the perfect album in their back pocket or the perfect series of photos or um the the music video that they're waiting to release that they can now be at the perfect time to release. It it it's easy through social media to see people in their most positive light and just to think that artists have it easy and like creating is easy and effortless but yeah it's overwhelming to see for me I really appreciate you sharing that because that's always something about your music that captured me from the beginning is this like openness and vulnerability to talk about things that people don't like talking about. People don't like dropping the facade. And I, th- I think at some point in this episode, I'm going to have to like share one of um, one of your songs, obviously. Um, but it, it, your music is like, okay, is a moment where we, you know, press pause and like take off that facade. So I'm just affirming that I appreciate what you're what you're sharing and how it's like so in line to both who you are as a friend in person, but also who you are as a musician. Thank you. Honestly, it's really the only way I know how to be. I <laughs> yes, Ava. <laughs> I love you. Oh, I love you too. <laughs> but really, I think that the the harder I try to look like everything's perfect or to be very um just to be very curated Mm. the harder it gets and the i i just don't end up creating work that way Me. 
occupied with protecting my past I don't need a ring but I need you to promise you'll be of your songs come from so the the last ep was written all throughout my college years for the most part um and i think a lot of those songs came from 
I think each song actually came from a, di- a very different place. Mm. A lot of them have themes about my personal anxiety. A lot of them have themes about my willingness to, or my, my desire to have real honest love. And I think each one of them, it, it actually took, it was a really difficult task for me to put them together as a project because each one of them was written at a very distinctly different time and felt like they each had their own individual identity to me. But I think overall, the the project has a lot of, a lot of the topics include like sensitivity and vulnerability as a strength and also kind of how to associate that with femininity in a radical sense Mm -hmm. that's gorgeous very libra (laughs) thank you i'm (laughs) libra for anyone who doesn't know (laughs) from one libra to another yes i see you (laughs) back to your songwriting do you remember the first song you ever wrote i remember the first song i ever finished ah can you tell me about that yeah um I so before I really started writing songs, I remember having like writing in my childhood diary and wanting so badly to emulate like the artists that I listened to at the time. So I would create like track listings and song titles, but not even necessarily write the songs. And then I would like take their lyrics and like insert my words, but it would still be their lyrics. It was all like a weird weird childhood things that you would do yeah that's so tender though that's so tender (laughs) I don't know why I I did it in such a methodical way even as like a 12 year old (laughs) yes here are my track listening here are my song names this is what my album looks like I love it it's so embarrassing there were it would there were definitely times where like the track listings would be like emotional song uplifting song like happy song (laughs) (laughs) that's so cute I really love that thank you (laughs) Um, but my first finished song, I think I wrote when I was maybe 16 and I brought it to a mentor that I had at the time who was a Berkeley student and she like sung it back to me and she helped me flesh out chords for it. And and that was really one of the first times that I had heard anyone like sing something that I wrote back to me. And that was really surreal. Yeah. What did that feel like? It felt... It didn't feel immediately exciting. It felt strange at first, mm-hmm. and it almost made me not want to write another song, <laughs> to be honest. So when you're looking at the Boston music scene right now, can you give me a sense of what it's like right now and how you've seen it change? I know it's so much a part of uh, how you organize and collaborate with folks and other musicians, other creatives. Yeah, I think the Boston music scene is probably the most vibrant that I've ever seen it. I think it's clear to anyone who who follows that hip hop and R&B are making a huge surge right now. And that's for a lot of reasons. And it's not as if hip hop and R&B artists haven't existed before this time, but I think major institutions are giving those genres the most attention right now. I, I feel lucky to be surrounded by artists who are doing so much amazing work especially for communities of color and getting the recognition that they deserve. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And I just feel lucky to be in community with people like that who are such like incredible activists, incredible writers, sane, 
you know, making these statements with their art that are so thoughtful and rich and, and full of complexity. I was going to say, who are some of these artists that if people aren't familiar with the Boston music scene that they should check out? Oh my God, so many, so many. If you have never listened to a local artist in Boston, a great place to start is Oompa. Mm-hmm. Amazing rapper doing all the things right now. Oompa, Red Shades, Brandy Blaze, um, Amanda Shea is an incredible spoken word poet and has been a mentor to me. Um, Eva Davenport is an amazing R&B singer. Uh, mm-hmm. Marcella Cruz, Brenda Ray, I could go on forever. <laughs> just stop me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like it's just really nice to hear Boston artists, especially Boston artists of color, get the shine they deserve, and um, especially all these amazing women artists as well. Yeah, so many. I there was an article that came out specifically about female lgbtq rappers killing the game right now and it's true and i Mm -hmm. feel lucky for it you were saying something before i asked you to list all of this um yeah just that i think that change in the boston has never had a reputation for being a hip-hop city before and i think that change has happened rapidly in the past five years and mm-hmm. I have such distinct memories before then of of having such a difficult time finding the right audience here. I started playing publicly in Boston when I was about 17. So that's maybe since 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Boston has a, Boston venues have a history of having racist dress codes and policies about music. I don't consider myself someone who's who's been directly affected by that, but even so, like playing venues and playing open mics that have this one very particular expectation of what what musicians should be doing, it was so so hard to navigate that as a young kid. Fast forwarding a little bit to present day, one of the first places I met you was was actually at an open mic, was at Subcontinental Drift Boston. And I I really want to dive in a little bit more about your relationship and identity as a South Asian, uh, a person who is also biracial, who is making music, you know, like that is unique, like very you. um, And it's, it's very universal. It doesn't box itself into just kind of like a, I don't know, what do you call it? Like a, just a desi sensibility. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Has it meant to find community and space? So I'm glad that you brought up Subdrift because I've been through so many different experiences that have shaped my view of what a South Asian can be. Um, I think the first time that I ever was surrounded by an entirely South Asian community outside of my family and in an artistic space was with Berkeley Indian Ensemble when I was in college. Mm. I sung with them for three years and had some of the most amazing professional experiences to date. I got to sing on stage with the great A.R. Rehman um, at Symphony Hall in Boston because of them. But I think in such a highly competitive environment as Berkeley is, and because of the person I was at the time, 
I felt really isolated as one, an Indian American kid and two, someone who didn't have um, a great classical training. I, I definitely was one of those kids who my parents tried to push like Carnatic vocals, Hindustani vocals. I took Bharatanatyam dance for like maybe a couple months and dropped it. So I have no um, classical background. And the, the students who really excelled in Berkeley Indian Ensemble had that from a very young age. So in an unfortunate mm. way, that gave me an even more of a reason to feel isolated in my identity. But I was lucky, I was backup singing for an artist while I was in college and she was featuring at a subgroup. Her name's Armi Musa. She's still- uh, yeah. yeah, I remember that. I remember hearing you for the first time during- Army Yeah, Musa. and it was one of those gigs that I was kind of dragged to a random place. I didn't know anything about subdrift or, or what the organization was, but I got there and I saw all the open mic performers and I was just so inspired that I decided to sign up for my own open mic slot and I, I performed Oceans Away, I remember, and everyone loved it. I, I got like amazing, amazing response. And I had never been in an environment that was primarily South Asian where people were so passionate about the arts and so just open and accepting to all different types of experiences. Yeah, and it's been, I mean, just speaking as someone who's seen you perform at Subdrift many times, it, like the evolution, like you're integral to the space. And I distinctly remember uh, when you and CJ, also known as Di Diaspora Gothic on the Instagrams, were getting ready to present Color Theory, which I'm going to have you talk yeah. about in a minute. Uh, that evening, there was someone new in the audience and I was just chatting with them and seeing what brought them to Subdrift and they shared that like, hey, I'm like biracial and I just sometimes never felt like I was Indian enough or South Asian enough or anything like that. And so I was nervous about coming to the space and to then for me to be able to say that like, hey, guess what? We have two artists featuring today who also identify as biracial, who are South Asian and this is a group of people who are not going to adjudicate who is South Asian enough to be there. The only reason we can say that is is because of your contributions to like our artistic community. But I think here. it has to be a push and pull. Like it's a back and forth that I brought myself to the space, but Subdrift also received me in the way that I needed at the time. So I, I'm so, so mm -hmm. grateful to them because so much of my outside of school, like in the professional world as an adult experience was cultivated through them. So now you know I'm gonna ask you about color theory because I brought it up uh just moments ago tell me about this collaboration. oh i love i love cj so much um cj brought this to me 
he told me that he had been working on this piece and he had this idea to add visuals and music to it and um, that he wanted me to do these intermittent songs between the parts of the narrative. And it was such a challenge at first because I don't usually take piano gigs. So I it was like the most piano experience that I had. Um, that was like my initial reaction to it is like, wow, this is a such a huge endeavor and like so much time and preparation is going into it. But um, it's such a unique lens into, I can't even really say that it's just about the biracial experience. It's written from the perspective of biracial experience, but it's really just, I think, CJ's relationship with race and identity. And I, I really like consider it his origin story. And I can very, I can not take very much credit for creative liberty. I think the entire vision for the piece was CJ's and I'm so happy that I could be there to accompany and, and be part of a piece that I really believed in. Mm. I will say that CJ is a poet and like evocative with the visuals that created, but like that only came to life because of the songs that you chose and shared. Like it was a mix of R&B. It was these old school Hindi songs. You oh, rapped. God. Oh no. <laughs> I heard you oh. rapped. And I remember you being really nervous. Oh, so nervous. I, I just am always nervous to sing in Hindi in general, even though I've done it, not just once, but many times. But every time I have to do it, I get a little bit of imposter syndrome. Um, but thank you. Shout out to you guys for, for helping me in the preparation of that. Oh, it was so fun. It was so fun. So I just wanted to affirm that the music was an important part oh, of that you. as well. And you've been also doing a lot of work to organize South Asian creatives outside of Subdrift. Can you tell me about some of the series and events that you've yeah, been creating? Um, I have a showcase that I've been curating for the past three years now it's called the the event series is called dusky peril and we mm. have had two events so far that have been really successful the last one was at dorchester art project shout out to them and mm -hmm. we feature a series of performing artists they could be writers or poets or musicians and we have um all a lineup of south asian vendors as well and nina was one at the last event, I'm so grateful <laughs> to have had her. Yes. And it was an incredible event. Like one for like, shout out to DAP because like there's very few affordable um, performance spaces in Boston these days. And they're one that really makes it possible for so many of us. And then two, it was just so nice to be in community with all of these gorgeous musicians <laughs> and then all these incredible visual artists. It was dope. Thank you for inviting me. To of be course. A part of that and event. DAP is so wonderful to work with. They really, really stand behind the local scene. So I appreciate that about that. Mm -hmm. Where did the name Dusky Peril come from? So Dusky Peril is a term that was used in, I can't, at the moment, I can't remember. Please fact check this if you're at home, but used basically to 
degrade South Asians. The migration of South Asians was you, the term was used as this is a dusky peril. So we kind of wanted to take that term and flip it on its head and use it as something that can be empowering for us. After having attended Subdrift for so long, I really appreciated that there was a space for South Asians to grow into their artistic voices. And I had not only been a part of that, but seen so many artists like really, really develop through Subdrift. And I felt that there was this need for a real, like a, a platform for South Asians to say, this is our finished work. This is our, our final product. So that's kind of where the idea came from. Mm. Hmm. And I, in the show notes, I'm going to include a link to the original article. It's actually from the early 1900s and it was published in Washington. And it's, this link is um, archived by an amazing organization called the South Asian American Digital Archive, or SADA. And it has actual clip that has like, have we a dusky peril? Hindu hordes invade, invading the state. It's really neat. I'm going to send it yeah, to you. Yeah, please do. Also, um, link Pyle's timeline as well, because that was the first time I learned about the term. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. We have a good friend and collaborator, Pyle Kumar, who leads this really gorgeous workshop on building a South Asian American timeline. And it's a collaborative, such a beautiful collaborative way to archive and source community events, but also like surface some of these other pivotal points in our diasporic history that kind of get erased. Um, So they do amazing amazing work. I'll link to that as well in the show notes. You know, I want to tell you a little tiny story, which I actually meant to tell you this way, way sooner than right now. It has to do with Dusky Peril, was that at the Red Barat concert, um, I was chatting with the author and academic Vivek Bald, who wrote the book, mm, Bengali Harlem. Yeah, so he was present and he said, you know, in my class last week, we were just talking about Dusky Peril, and I saw that there was a Dusky Peril initiative that came up on Instagram. Can you tell oh, me more? I wish it? you could see my face. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's like, I mean, I, I mean, I, he's seen you perform. Really? Um, and yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. Because he can't comes to something. I didn't sometimes. know. Okay. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I was like, yeah, uh, like this is a like an arts initiative that the you know musician Eva Sophia has like been co-leading. Um, it was really delightful. transition of the COVID quarantine, I've been trying to, well, first of all, I've, I've felt the most sad about losing community spaces or what feels like losing community spaces because I can't be in physical community with people anymore. So I've been trying to figure out ways to apply those same skills to digital platforms. So I started this 
little um, series called Singer Circle, which is basically a space for singers to come together, um, find community with one another over a shared love for music and, and, and singing and not as, and also creating a space that decenters me as a teacher and is just a facilitated space for us to have discussions on resources, um, techniques that have worked for us. It's like a little open mic style performance space. Um, so just like, I really, really want it to be a safe space for singers to find their voice, literally. Mm -hmm. To you, what does it mean to have a voice? To me, what does it mean to have a voice? I think everybody has a voice, but I think to be fully connected and in touch with that voice takes so much intentional work and patience with yourself. If you were talking to your younger self, um, as a younger <laughs> Sophia music was <laughs> um, developing her voice, what advice would you give her? I would say never underestimate what you can do and never let anyone put yourself in a box. Listen to everyone when they tell you you are good at something and just do the thing that you want to do just start it as soon as you can and and don't think that you're only a singer or you're only a songwriter or you can only do things in one way just don't put all that aside and just do it just try things eva as we wrap up two like lighthearted questions one being what has been a recipe that has given you the most joy during this quarantined time and the second question is like what music have you been oh I love these lately? lighthearted questions the first question about food I think the the recipe that's given me the most joy is making homemade pizza both times <laughs> I've made it it's turned out amazing and uh, there's a story that goes with it and I'm gonna tell you why so um the thing about growing up biracial is that I I grew up to realize that some of the recipes I learned from either parent or either family actually came from the opposite family. So for example, I learned to make a bunch of like simple subji dishes from my mom who learned those recipes from my grandma and aunts. And I have very, very distinct memories of making pizza every single weekend with my dad. And he learned that recipe from my mom and grandfather. Wow. <laughs> so making pizza just like invokes or evokes that memory for me. And I kind of use uh, an amalgamation of my mom's recipe and dad's recipe. And it just feels very special. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds so special. And I've seen oh, the thank photos. you. So um, caramelized yeah. onions. I highly recommend that as the oh. best topping. Oh. <laughs> and you asked about what music I've been listening to. Let's see. Yeah. Today, I I constantly have Jamila Woods on loop, so I was listening to a lot of her today. Um, I was gravitating today mm -hmm. towards music that reminded me of home. So I was, I had um, a song on repeat from one of my favorite local rappers named Tayshawn Taylor. 
he has a song called Don't mm-hmm. Take It From Me and it's about gentrification in Boston. And that was just giving me the like heartfelt, nostalgic feels that I wanted thinking about home. That's amazing. Eva, thank you for sharing your time and hopping on the pod with me this has been so long (laughs) thank you so so much for the opportunity (laughs) i am such a fangirl and stan (laughs) and where can all the beautiful listeners you can find find me on any streaming platform whichever is your favorite spotify apple music um savan at (laughs) at ava sophia (laughs) and all social media at ava sophia music Thank you so much. Thank you again, Ava. Hey, cute humans. Nina here. Did you like the show? Isn't Ava amazing? Well, you can always leave us a cute review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find it. We are all over the place at Omira Radio, whether that's Twitter or Facebook. Sheila, you can find her at Queen of Blah. And you can find me, Nina, at radio.rani on Instagram. Our incredible interlude music is by the one and only Saraswati Jones. We're super reclaimed. We're V-excited. You can go back into our archives and listen to the incredible interview we had with her. And that's it, honestly. Leave us a voicemail. Sheila and I will be providing some uninformed hot takes coming up soon. And we'd love to get your take on what we should weigh in on next. Okay, that's all I got, folks. See ya! See ya!